One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to episode one of ADHD Chatter. I am genuinely very excited to introduce our very first guest. His name is Matt Gupwell. He is probably one of the most knowledgeable people in the area of neurodiversity and, and specifically ADHD that I think I've met. He has ADHD himself, many members of his family have ADHD, and he's the founder of a consultancy firm called Think Neurodiversity. Now, Matt and I spoke for a couple of hours. It's a long conversation. There'll be notes in the description. We, we chatted all about what is ADHD, how you can harness your ADHD, good days and bad days, how ADHD played a part in me creating Unilad and Lad Bible, ADHD and addiction, ADHD in children. Is ADHD a superpower? ADHD on social media, masking, neuro, neurodiversity in business and ADHD in relationships. So it is a very broad episode. If you want to skip to bits that you're interested in, then, then go ahead. But um, yeah, Matt, absolute legend. Let's jump straight in. Hello, Matt. Hello, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. No, thanks so much for agreeing to come on. I know you must be extremely busy. Yeah, well, Neurodiversity Celebration Week, or in the, it, it comes to the end of it. So yeah, it's been a it's been a good week and a busy week. Um, sort of taking part in panels and and training, but uh, yeah, it's really good. Good time to be talking all things neurodivergent, really. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew you'd be a great guest to bring on first because I started this podcast with almost like a, a selfish intention to learn as much about ADHD as I could by speaking to people who were far more knowledgeable on the topic than I am. Um, and I thought, let's make the conversations public. I've I was aware of you. you you're a founder of a consulting firm called Think, Neurodiv Think Neurodiversity. You've, you've been living with ADHD for some time and I think ADHD is, is a big part of your life and I think you, your family life as well. We can talk about that later if you... Absolutely if is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
just to start, and I think this will be a really good question to kick off, the, in fact, the entire podcast with is, on your LinkedIn bio, you say you can make the complex easy to understand. And that would be really helpful for me because I'm still trying to get my head around it. And I'll say mm-hmm. here's the question. What is ADHD? Okay, so I often answer this in two ways. You can go the medical definition or you can go the definition of someone that's lived with it or is or is coming to terms with it and somewhere in the middle they'll cross. So the medical definition, as I understand it, ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, is a neurological disorder, and we can talk about that word later, um, that affects the way an individual processes information and also their ability to manage things like impulse control and their ability to manage their own physical or mental stimulation and hyperactivity. So from a medical model, which was all based on young boys way back when in terms of uh, diagnosis, it was everybody's classic example of the the young boy six seven years old in school bouncing around not able to sit still never being quiet being quite disruptive we obviously now know more than that that it's not that or not only that should we say and it affects adults it affects as many girls as it does boys likely they just take a lot longer to pick up and diagnose from an individual point of view adhd is for me split between the things that present you challenges in life that perhaps you've always questioned why is this hard why do i struggle with as well as adhd is the thing that can mean you are able to do things with ease that sometimes you question why other people can't do so when you reference that that quote on my linkedin bio what that actually comes from believe it or not is in a previous career um, before moving into consultancy, uh, I I worked in entertainment for 15 years. Um, and from entertaining, I uh, one of the things I did was teach circus skills. Um, and I taught juggling. Um, and from around about July, it would have been of 2009, through to, let's say, January of 2020. Two, when I officially stopped any kind of fun entertainment, I think I taught somewhere, broadly speaking, around 80,000 people to juggle three balls on my own. About 10,000 of those were completely online during COVID. Now, I would very often teach hundreds of people at once or small groups. And the thing that people often said to me was, I've always wanted to be able to juggle. Someone's tried to teach me before. I can't do it. They couldn't do it. Now I'm juggling. I don't understand why. And it was purely because I cottoned on very quickly that if I used my ADHD brain and the way that's wired, as well as autistic thinking, to teach and to pay attention to what people were doing, I could make sense of what juggling was a lot quicker than if I taught it the way every single book and every single pamphlet and every single set of juggling balls you've ever bought taught it. Once I realised that, I used different language in a different order, in a different way, and my success level went through the roof really fast. I've then applied that to everything. That's the way I I teach everything. Um, So it's this ability to understand what ADHD does for me, 
it gives me this ability to, for example, I was explaining this this morning on, a, on another call. I used to teach groups on average of sort of between 30 and 60 people at once to juggle. And it used to really confuse people that I would normally stand sort of far away or on a race platform so I could see everyone. And throughout the session, after I taught them the basics, I would constantly be going, you there with the red hair, you need to do this with your left hand, you there in the blue coat, you need to do that. By the way, you at the back, you're not doing that at the right time. You're throwing the balls in the air too quickly. And people would often say, how do you know all of it? How are you doing that? So because I'm watching you all constantly. I'm watching you all, all at the same time. I'm scanning the room constantly and I'm able to pick up the detail and then help you because it's the detail. I never met anyone else that did it like that. They would teach and mostly let people to get on with it. And if they succeeded, they succeeded. If they didn't, oh, well, juggling's hard. I didn't believe that. And that's the way I teach when I teach things like ADHD, autism, you know, teach people about neurodivergent conditions. Um, whether it's online or in person, I'm constantly reading the room, I'm constantly reading people, and I'm using that same ability to understand where people have got gaps in their knowledge, to understand where there's maybe hesitancy or confusion or embarrassment. And then I'm using those same teaching skills to break that down and and to, to help educate people. So it's something that I'm aware I wouldn't be able to do if it weren't for ADHD. It's, it's as simple as that for me. So ADHD is complex. It's exhausting. It's fascinating. It's much more common than we think. It affects many more people than we currently recognize. Um, and it takes a long time for people to understand, like you've said about yourself, it takes a long time for people to understand how it has impacted on them and what that's meant in different situations, what that may have made difficult or what that may have made easier. From a medical model, it's still deficit based, but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't just be about can't do this, won't be able to do this, we'll struggle with that. It should be about it's a different way of wiring. Your brain is wired differently, but you may find that you're good at different things. So that's what it is to me. Um, but it's also one of the, despite all of the hard times I've had, it's generally one of the greatest things I could ever say is part of my character. I wouldn't be who I am if it weren't for ADHD. No, absolutely. I think we're all we're all um, unique, and and mm. it is a, it is a part of us. It just doesn't have to be us. And hearing you explain it in that way is so relatable. I, I, there's been so many times in my life where I've I can think back, and something's happened, and I've been a great problem solver. Or I've mm -hmm. looked at something differently to everyone else in my class or everyone else in my group of friends, and to the point where they've actually commented saying, "How the hell did you work that out, Alex?" Yeah, like, that was really quick. The issue I have is like the lack of consistency um, with that uh, with that ability to pro uh, spot problems. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I had that, if I could unlock that at will, then I would probably be the prime minister by now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I understand. I, I, I think like that's, I, um, and it really depends on what happens in the lead up to it um, and where I am in my head on that day. If yes. I have a good morning and I go for a run or something good happens and I get some affirmation and I get some uh, positive 
feedback about something and I'm in a good place, then I'm I'm amazing. And mm-hmm. I can do, I think, really yeah. super um, amazing things. Um, but if my day goes slightly differently, if I get, uh, if things don't go in a way that gives me that, I suppose, I don't know, is it like dopamine, right? Of, uh, and and yeah. it sets me up to un- unlock that sort of, ability which has led me to do some amazing things in my life then then it's not there so it's this lack of consistency i find that is is the setback but when but when it is turned on then then that's where where sort of some some great things can happen yeah Um, i completely agree with that but i actually also think that goes back to what you say about it's the learning process you've had those abilities and those difficult periods all your life way before you knew ADHD was a part of you or was was a thing that may be relevant to you so you knew that when you were going through education whether it's school college or time at university whatever it was but when you look back at it with the ADHD filter in place now you're clearer about you know when it's good you know when it's not so good and you know what helps you to be good so you can start to more effectively and more consistently unlock it when you don't know or when you're when you're still very early on in your learning there's so much information about adhd that's out there there's so many people talking about it which on one hand is fantastic but on the other hand can be really confusing who do you look at as the source who do you trust who's whose information is current, up-to-date, using latest research, whose is just quoting stuff that's 10 years old, 15 years old, who's just trying to sell a book that they've written with their take on ADHD, for example. It's so hard to know, which is why, for me, it's uh, one of the, the best things I've, I've learned to do is reflect on me more, reflect on the things that happen, reflect on the good, reflect on the bad, take what I'm lucky enough to know about this topic and then filter it for myself. Okay, why X, why what Z? Does that make sense? It's sort of a, Mm. I'm constantly reflecting, I'm constantly learning what it is that, like you, makes me good when I'm good, not so good when I'm not so good. And then it's about trying to replicate, just like you said, the things that I do before I have to, let's use the word perform. Okay, so before I have to record a podcast, teacher training seminar, whatever it may be, what do I need to do so that I'm in the right state of mind? Now, that can include all sorts of things, depending on where you are. You know, I take medication for my ADHD, but it's not actually ADHD medication. Um, that's that's been part of a process I've had to go through, but it helps. So I know my medication gives me the ability to think clearer to slow everything down but then i also do a range of other things every day just like you that i know top that up so throughout the week i will practice breath work i will practice meditation i take cold showers i have a cold plunge pool in my garden i'll do bits of yoga you know walking my dog factors into it if i know i've got a stressful something coming up i take my meds i do those things and then I'm okay. If any of those things aren't available to me, then I know I'm probably going to not be in quite the right mindset. And it doesn't matter how good my ADHD can make me, it will be more of a struggle. But it's taken me a long time to learn what those 
you know what those things are i call it my own sort of personal toolkit it sits in here i've got five or six things that i can go to some take 30 seconds some take 30 minutes and somewhere in between but they all do a job um but there's no right or wrong i think is the big thing for me what i find effective you might not and and again that's the danger i think we have to be willing to experiment we have to use ourselves as a human experiment to say what will help me rather than this will help me because it's helped someone else it makes it makes a lot of sense and you kept talking about what you things you do what you don't do before you're about to do something you said perform and i can mm. I, I take that back to if I'm going to be speaking on stage or if I'm yep. going to a meeting or if I'm now we're going to be recording a podcast episode. Yeah. Um, or even if I'm going to meet a friend, I'm very careful about what I expose myself to in the lead up to that thing. Um, having the knowledge now that if I, for example, put out a LinkedIn post or a post on social media, um, if that doesn't go well, or if I get a mm -hmm. few comments that say, oh you used to be funny or no that's wrong, i saw that or, yeah you know and so that really hits me and that's that can really derail me for a couple of hours mm. um, so i'm very if i've got a, you know something important to do in the afternoon then i'm really conscious of what i expose myself to yeah. in the morning um and I, I avoid anything that could potentially um knock me off course and i gravitate towards things that are going to set me up yeah for example before this i've like similar to you i've walked my dog um i've eaten well I'm, i think i'm hydrated i've had a fair bit of caffeine mm -hmm. uh, and and i've been on a 5k run yeah um and that for me gives me the best yeah. chance of of being being at my best yeah yeah absolutely because you know what makes you feel if i use the phrase level you know, if you, if you think of your brain as an equilibrium between functioning well and not functioning at all, we're all trying to find the equilibrium. We're all trying to find that happy point. So you know what things help you find your equilibrium. You don't want to be sky high. You don't want to be in a state of sort of mania or overexcitement because it can send you the other way. And you don't want to be down in the doldrums because somebody's put a comment on a you know a post that's that's made you get, feel bad you want that balance well you know what things get your balance i know what things find my balance and it's doing that uh, and and it comes back to this word consistency which is something that adhd has do tend to struggle with is consistency i'm aware of that you know routines and habits of i think much harder to form for people with adhd um, in general but if we can find the things that resonate for us work for us that give us our equilibrium we have a much better chance of having more good days than we do bad days medication medical intervention or not um but it's about you know I, I always come back to this thing we're all individuals in this we have shared commonality in terms of you know if you've been diagnosed you've gone through an assessment against a set of standardized criteria from dsm5 wherever we are now which means you meet a medical model but you're still you 
in your environment, in your world, and what you need is going to differ to the next person, to the next person. It will differ if you're a woman. It will differ depending on your race and on your gender, on your sexuality, on, on financial status. So all of this sort of intersectionality that we have to consider as well is really important. So you've just got to go, okay, what works for me? And if it works and you can prove it works time and again, bank that and find something else as well. But once you've got it, it does make things that bit easier. At least for me, it has. Mm, definitely. And I guess that comes from self-awareness grows as you go through experiences. Mm -hmm. So young people with ADHD probably aren't aware of what's what's good to set them up and what's no. bad to avoid so it's it's something that if you go on that th theory then the older you get with it the more the better you're going to get mm -hmm. at, at self-managing and yeah and um avoiding the negatives and, and going towards the positives to yeah. sort of get you in that sweet spot of where you're where you work best yeah absolutely but it's also you talk about children so you know, I've got two teenagers, they're 17 and 18. Now, they both like video games. Um, they both play different things. One of them is a, you know, a sim racer and he would love to be a professional driver, whether it's online or in person, and he's probably good enough, but you know, that's a money thing. The other one is a, what I call a more traditional gamer. Now, what they are still learning, and my wife and I are still trying to help them learn, is balance is that, that happy medium between when to turn the games off and read a book, do something else, versus staying on them all hours of the day and the night and then struggling to get up for college in the morning. Because the filter that they have isn't fully developed yet. Their ability to, you know, they're, they're getting this dopamine rush and these endorphin rushes from playing the games, and they haven't yet fully developed their ability to step away from those feelings and say well that's enough for now i'll come back to this tomorrow as adults as parents we've had to learn that i've got adhd wife's got adhd but we have to manage those highs and those those lows and you know there are things i want to do all the time that i know i can't do but we therefore are their model of learning or at least we try to be and always have tried to um so it's it's again it's that balance thing it's it's whether your children are very young and you know or whether your children are very young and you suspect and the same as whether you're an adult and you know or whether you suspect there's no reason for you not to start experimenting with things that may help you don't need a piece of paper if you really firmly believe that adhd fits what's going on for you or a family member or whomever there's no reason that you have to wait to start trying to do things that might help you but very often people think, well, unless I know for sure, how do I know these things will work? How do we know anything unless we try? Right. But I hear that all the time. So it's it's this thing of if you if you feel you're struggling more than you're succeeding, shall we say, start trying to find things that may help. If you're lucky enough to get a diagnosis, and I do use that word, if you're lucky enough to get a diagnosis of this condition, great. Maybe you open up medication. Maybe. But if you're on a lengthy waiting list, if you can't afford a private diagnosis, it isn't a shut door. Okay. Yes, it might be more challenging, but it isn't a closed door on you. It just means a different approach might be required, but you can start now. You mentioned 
just going back, a se- uh, I, I want to get on to diagnosis in, in a second. Yeah. Um, I think, and I, I agree with you, I think diagnosis is a privilege, mm-hmm. uh, especially at the moment. If you could, if you've got money, you can get diagnosed mm-hmm. at the moment, pretty much what it is. Um, but just go, going back a little bit, you said with children and adults, like the burnout from going a million miles an hour too quickly and not taking breaks mm-hmm. essentially like, and the analogy I've recently sort of put into my head which helps me massively is I imagine I'm at the bottom of a hill and the end goal is at the top of the hill mm-hmm. I've always sprinted from the bottom up the hill mm-hmm. in, a, in my huge excitement of yeah. wanting to complete the task and of course I'm going to get tired and I'm going to stop and I'm yeah. going to get nowhere near yeah. the goal um, but if I walk and if I take breaks and if I come back to it I'll get to the top and I'll get to the goal. Um, and it, it sounds like a basic analogy, but for me to be able to visualize that has really helped because there's been so many examples in, in my life. I look back where I've gone through the sort of boom and bust. Where mm-hmm. got, I mean, there's loads where I've got to the goal and, and, and it's been amazing, but there's been just as many where I've had an idea, gone a million miles an hour, mm-hmm. stayed up all night on it and then, you know, yeah, it's, it's 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 almost like a, a laughing example now because a lot of people with ADHD I think can relate to this, oh, yeah. and then two weeks later they're just not interested in it and they're looking back and yeah. thinking why did I buy that domain or why have I yeah. painted the spare room yellow? Yeah, I, yeah. I don't want to be an, a designer anymore, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, just slowing down and and it's sometimes easier said than done when you're in that when you're in that when you're in that period of excitement mm-hmm. and you just want to go 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 go, but just take your foot off the accelerator if you can yeah but it's understanding why you why you end up in that period of excitement so what i've now learned is that there will always have been a trigger to that now it could be that you're in a good place could equally be just as often that you're in a bad place and so rather than facing what you know you've got to face in front of you rather than thinking about you know the stuff that's challenging you our brains are very, very pleasure-seeking, dopamine-centric brains. So we will very quickly be at risk of getting very distracted by the, I could be a designer, or this is a great business idea. And there is literally no gap between that initial thought and going down the rabbit hole. Like you say, staying up all night, buying the domain. I can't tell you how many domain names I've owned in my past. It's, yeah, ridiculous. I thought I should have shares in one, two, three, Reg, right? It's ridiculous. But I know that every time I've done it, it has distracted me for a period of time from the real work and the stuff I know I need to do as husband, as dad, as small business owner, as whatever, because that's all too difficult at the time. So it's, it's a recognition skill at the early stage right um of hold on a minute why am i doing this you know have i actually stopped and even sketched out of you know to corner phrase a, a back of a beer mat business plan about this to realize this is lunacy no i'm i'm going to skip all the steps and go to spending money getting overexcited and then going uh oh, yeah i don't want to do that anymore but when yeah, you, you get haven't written a Nothing. I was going to say, you haven't, you haven't written a thing on a cigarette packet. Nothing. You've been too busy designing the website. Yeah, You've been too busy yeah exactly. Doing all the, all the branding and too yeah. busy 
yeah. doing everything you need to do in yeah. the space of 48 hours. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And here's the interesting one, right? So my own father now, mid-70s, has got more awareness of ADHD than he ever did because of my diagnosis and, and everything I've learned and everything he's learned. And only recently said to me, look, I'm aware now that I've had ADHD all my life. The difference here, Matt, is that I didn't know what it was. It wasn't a thing. And even when it did have the impact on me, I was somehow able to manage, or I somehow was able to manage it, you know, and my, my, my stepmom has been an incredible rock for him in, in helping him do that as well. But I remember the first time I think he said, he was, he was a very, very successful sort of sales VP and um, IT software sales for many big companies. And he always used to say from about 12 to 14 years old to me and my brother, I'm going to set up a business and I'm going to call it stuff. Right. And what stuff? Well, stuff is that that thing where, you know, when you have a good idea, I'm going to I'm going to have a business that sells stuff. And I said, OK, what are you going to invent? I said, I'm going to do this. Now, this was pre-internet, really. So you couldn't fact check whether it's out there. I've just, it's like the cocktail umbrella scenario. I'm going to design a cocktail umbrella or whatever. Because the idea's popped in your head. It's really exciting. I'm going to really hyper-focus on it. And then now, with the power of Google, you go, oh, it's already on Amazon. Right? <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's lunacy when you look at it from the outside, but it really makes you feel much better. That dopamine sensing, that dopamine chasing is, is just too much fun. Right? And, and I think that's what often gets us into problems. You know, it's when we start to feel a bit um, invincible. But what we're not being invincible. We're just being incomprehensible. <laughs> it's like talking a million miles. And I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm not, I'm not coming to bed tonight. Just, just, somebody just needs to pull the plug and take the, cut the Wi-Fi. Say, no, sleep now, please. Mm. You know, because otherwise you're not functioning as you're supposed to. But... Again, you only start to notice that when you've done it enough times to realise there's a pattern and then to really put the effort into not doing it next time. Even when you've had successes. That's what I find interesting. You can look at your career, for example, and the successes that you've had and the ideas that have worked. The process was likely the same at the start. Right. It was a really good idea and you hyper focused on it. It's just that somewhere in that process, it became a really, really good idea. And I guarantee there was a point where you then slowed down and you did write the business plan and you did do the numbers and you did back off from all the exciting stuff and do the mundane entrepreneurial work. To then get investment and say, oh, no, this actually works. Right. And I guarantee until the first paycheck, that was nowhere near as exciting. It's... No, it wasn't. And I mean, th this is the fascinating, or this is what fascinates me. And, and it's, it's a question I get asked a lot. And I'm, I struggle to answer it because I don't know. When I started Unilad and Lab Bible and many other lesser known social media brands, yeah. they're, the, they're really like the only things that I've stuck at consistently uh, in my professional life. And, yeah. and and I ask myself, why? Why have I stuck at those? And I think, and I correct me if I'm wrong, it's because when I started Unilad in 2010, Facebook was, I mean, just from a boring technical point, Facebook was 
promoting Facebook pages, basically. Mm -hmm. So it instantly gave you a lot of reach. It instantly pushed your content out to a, an audience. You instantly got a load of engagement mm -hmm. and dopamine releasing mm -hmm. likes and comments and shares. I instantly got that dopamine, loop, that cycle of dopamine coming to me. And that never stopped. Um, and uh, Unilag got bigger. The number of comments, the number of likes, the number of shares got bigger. And that went on for about two years, got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I launched Lab Bible. Again, Facebook was still pushing pages. So I had Lab Bible on one page, Unilad on one page. And it was, I never got that, that, that uh, period of stagnation or, or boredom or where I wasn't getting something in return, where my brain wasn't firing up and giving me that, wow, this is really fun. I'm really, really enjoying this. Um, and I mean, for, you know, far more about ADHD than I do. Do you think that has some merit to it? That oh, kind of completely, thing? yeah. And and all I could hear when you were talking about the Facebook pages, I could just see all the thousands, tens of thousands of little thumbs up and heart icons and emojis. Bing, 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 bing. Every time you turn a device on, bing, 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 bing. And what do you see? That's me, that, that's me. That's my idea. I did that. Yay, this is amazing. I'm not going to do even more content. I'm going to do it more and more and bigger and faster and harder. And... and and you do just peak and peak and peak and peak and peak and peak and peak until, like everything, there's a point where you can't peak anymore. Now, it's what you do in the background that's important for me. Because with every dopamine spike, at some point there's going to be a crash. And there's also the periods where you can't be on the computer, where you can't be working. And it's how are you managing yourself and the difficulty. And it's why I'm so fascinated in the links between ADHD and addiction and addictive behaviors. The problem for me is a lot of the time we haven't learned that self-regulation. So when your work is like, 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 if home doesn't match up to that, it suddenly becomes, well, I now need something that gives me a similar high. And that's why we see a lot of people that turn to alcohol or drug misuse or, you know, porn addiction or whatever it may be, because what they suddenly in their private life need is another high. They know it's not the same one, but they need something else because they are so used to that dopamine spike in their brain that they literally can't function without it. And that's when we start to hit problems because then it affects your day-to-day -day life because now you're tired or you're not as focused as you should be because you've been up all night doing other things or drinking too much or hitting the gym too hard or whatever it may be. And suddenly the regulation goes out of the window. And, and that's, I think, where you're absolutely right. But if you could teach kids anything, it would be you need to understand how to switch off from that. Does that make sense? You need to know how to go, great, this feedback is amazing, but I need to walk away and do something healthy now. I mean, that's fascinating because no one's ever explained it in a way that you just have. Uh, Unilad was 2010, Lab Bible 2012. 2012, and really starting in 2010 is when I started to drink problematically. Right. I had, I had drunk like a normal person for all of my life up until that point mm -hmm. and then when i started uni lab bible that's when the drinking became a problem and i mean i don't know what, what i mean what you've just said you know i was getting this mega dopamine tsunami mm -hmm. from my social media work almost on tap yeah. i could post something and 
like 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 like, yeah. like and it was and I you know it was it was amazing but then I turned off the computer and I would drink too yeah. much um so no one's ever no one's ever explained that what what you've just said and I think I mean the timing is is matches up perfectly yeah. I don't know No it did for me as well um, absolutely did for me yeah absolutely it's it's if your brain is in the habit of responding to pleasure in a different way to a quote unquote normal brain. Okay. And what we don't know is we don't know how to regulate that, but we really like seeking it. You have to keep seeking it and you start seeking it in every possible place, way, fashion, because otherwise life feels for, well, for me, I can only speak for me. Life just felt depressing and hard and uh, and slow i've got two and, and have had two amazing kids the most incredible wife a wonderful family now i'm in recovery now right finally but at the point that i wasn't i was i had a pretty successful entertainment business i was doing fantastic things i managed to get myself you know in public eye tv lots of people knew me i was the happy smiley hey guy behind the scenes i was a completely different person because i couldn't cope with the mundanity of life i couldn't cope with the the pace of life and i ended up trying to i mean literally they talk about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in, 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 in addiction, right? I was that character. My persona in the public eye was one thing. My persona behind the scenes was so, so far removed from it because I didn't like that person. I couldn't, I didn't know who I was anymore. I was, I was putting on a character for work, coming home going, I don't know who I am. I don't like this feeling of not knowing who I am. I'll create another character in a completely different environment because that gives me a different kind of a, a dopamine rush. And I didn't know how to regulate myself and I didn't know how to stop until, you know, it all came crashing down. And I now now understand that that's why, you know, I'm diagnosed with severely disabling combined subtype ADHD. Those two words, when I got my diagnosis, should have been clue enough that there was something really wrong, severely disabling. I knew what that meant, and yet it took me another uh, nearly three years for everything to come crashing down, right? And, and so I'm now very, very sort of passionate about trying to understand this link. I'm not saying it's the same for everyone. That would be entirely remiss. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a clinician. You know, um, th there is a, there are any number of sources of people who are clinically qualified to talk about this, you know, but, but from my experience and what I've seen of other people as well, this just makes sense. And now I'm I'm sort of trying very hard to put the, the join the dots to say this could all be avoided. This could be avoided early if we give kids coping mechanisms. You know, you hear a lot of people talk about, oh, social media, bad, bad, bad social media is bad. Gaming's bad. These kids aren't living in a real world. No, it's only bad if we don't teach them how to not maintain a healthy balance. It's only bad. But, think, but how do you do that? Is, does that start, or both? Does that start at home or at school? Both. Do we need to 
education. Yes. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Which I, I have a lot of friends who are teachers at every level, at every pay grade, and and I have nothing but the utmost respect for teachers and teaching assistants and and everyone in between. You know, mommy helpers, nanny helpers, right? Anyone that works in any establishment, I take my hat off to. However, the biggest issue still is that we have what I call broad stroke understanding of what each thing means. So we have a broad stroke populist understanding of what is ADHD, a broad stroke understanding of what is autism, of what is dyslexia. And they are not the same for every child. Right. My two sons present completely differently in terms of ADHD and autism. So do I put us in the same classroom with three completely different kids. But our medical diagnosis are the same. We, we need teachers to have the 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 more general knowledge. And what they need to be trained on is not the clinical knowledge. From my point of view, they need to be able to spot when children are struggling with anxiety, because listen, at the heart of all of this is kids that can't regulate their anxiety. And that's when they're going to struggle with their presentation of things. That's when they're going to struggle to concentrate. That's when they're going to struggle with their sort of hyperactivity is when they're not stimulated in the right way, when they're anxious, when they don't understand. If more teachers and, and people in those establishments understand that, we can start putting in really quite simple processes that that make it better for everyone, the kids, the teachers, the parents. But we're not there yet. Only yesterday I heard an example of, I think, a six-year-old kid, diagnosis of ADHD, has been on medication, has needed his medication to change, so he's on a drug holiday, which is fairly standard practice, sort of month's holiday, but his behaviour has gone out the window because his drugs really help him. He's been excluded from school three times in this four-week period. That's heartbreaking. Now, for my money, if the parents have been told, little one needs a drugs holiday, it should be a conversation with that school to say, look, do you know what? He's not coming into school for a month. Send the work home. Let's keep him in his safe environment. Let's do some homeschooling, whether it's with mom, dad, grand, you know, if it's possible, because trying to have him in the classroom environment for this month is just a recipe for disaster. And all it will do is break him. Because he thinks he's the problem and he's not. He's not the problem. But but all of that sounds very easy. All of that. Sound, right. I'm making that sound like, oh, it's easy. To, it's not. You can't change the education system overnight. You can't have these processes in schools overnight. It, 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 I, I am aware of that. But at the basic level, that I think is what's needed. Because I saw it with my own children. I had experienced it with me. And I'm hearing about it every day as well. There'll be a lot of parents listening and uh, perhaps some teachers listening as well. What would Is there any advice you could give them on early things to watch out for that a kid might present or display that perhaps could a be anxiety or just a broader display of ADHD. so i think the biggest one and i can think back to my own children and i can think back to me the biggest one and the word you hear a lot is fidgeting right you've got fidgeting and when when we're talking young girls particularly and girls you also then get lots of girls who are um, often called sort of daydreamers or away with the fairies not particularly disruptive, not particularly hyperactive, but just not quite there, right? 
kids are going to be like that from the minute they work, walk into a nursery through to the time they leave higher education, right? If, if they're not aware of it, they're going to display those things. And if teachers are aware that the kid that's fidgety, the kid that struggles to not answer every question or butts in or doesn't have maybe even particularly great spatial awareness, right? Or the little girl that sits there and maybe just smiles to herself, giggles or scribbles or doodles and doesn't seem to be paying attention. They are not being naughty. It's not a willful thing. At that point, it's a, okay, let's have a look at how often this happens. Let's have a look when this happens. And then let's do some reflection on it as adults. Okay, what were they being asked to do at the time? What was everyone else doing at the time? And did they seem to be able to cope with those instructions? If the answer is predominantly no, yes, you may have cause to say, mm, I wonder why this happens so frequently. If it's once in a blue moon, okay, it could be behavior. The, the, the best thing I can reference is when my oldest son was, I think, I seem to remember five or six years old, infant school for sure, been diagnosed with autism a couple of years at that point. Um, and we had a, a conversation with an autism specialist from our local authority and the, the special needs teacher, the Senko of the school, who's still a friend now. And our son was presenting some, should we say, interesting behaviours in the classroom. What were classed as a bit challenging? You know, he couldn't sit still. He was hiding under tables at various things. And this, this specialist said to us, look, I'm going to say something now and it might horrify you and it might terrify you for your child's future, but it's important. You now have to get really good as mom and dad and teachers at understanding the difference between normal five-year-old behaviour and autistic behaviours. Because the autistic behaviours will be the product of anxiety that this little kid is, that this little boy is displaying. However, they're going to look similar very often. It's going to be the case that we need to look at the cause, not the behaviour. What happened? just before this happened and she then told us which was vaguely horrifying but isn't it going back to what we just said that when children aren't supported like that at early stage the risk of them then ending up in the prison service the risk of them ending up being addicted to various substances and behaviors because they don't learn to regulate themselves because they haven't been able to manage those behaviors goes up exponentially because they don't get the toolkit early. Now, I'm, I remember sitting there and being pretty shell-shocked by that information as a young parent going, Christ, okay, that's really cheery. But it actually was some of the best advice we were ever given. And it's advice I share every time I speak because it's true. We have to understand not what they're doing, but why they're doing it. And it's the why that's important. You know, what happened before? Have they been triggered by classmates that know how to push their buttons and know if they do this, little Sally's going to act out, right? Have we asked them to do a piece of work, but they don't have the ability to say, I don't understand this, and therefore they start acting out in a different way? Does that make sense? Rather than, oh, mm. he's not sitting still, he's being loud, she's, she's not concentrating. That's just them showing you there's an issue. You've got to go, what is the issue? And then we can work backwards and start trying to put strategies in each time it happens. 
Now, multiply that by a class of 30, take any standard definitions of how many people have got ADHD. I think last time I read it was one in 10. Okay, well, that means in a class of 30, three children are going to be given those issues for ADHD alone and then think autism and then think dyslexia and then think dyspraxia. Suddenly, it's a lot harder for teachers. It can't be one-to-one. -one. It can't be individual care. But it can be done... I think, I believe, without needing massive intervention. It's just, it comes back to this word awareness. Do, do you think teachers and parents are getting a lot of their awareness from social media? And There's a risk of that. And... There's a, the kids certainly are, and younger kids as well certainly are, without question. Um, and, and young adults as well, to be fair, you know, I mean, absolutely. Parents and teachers, I don't know, it can be from Facebook, it can be Instagram, it can be TikTok, it can be what they read in the news. And this is where I, I come back to this thing of it's getting very muddled at the moment. It's getting really muddled. Um, and whilst I'm all for more discussions about this, hence sitting here with you, I'm very cautious that it's quality information that's required. It's quality experiences. Um, because otherwise, we, we, we end up in a situation where it gets so muddled, it gets so inconsistent that there's too many mixed messages. So there's there's a term in, in general advocacy for ADHD, and you, you may even have used it yourself, because we do, about my own lived experience, right? My lived experience, I've been diagnosed, so I'm going to share my lived experience. Now, I have a, I have a sort of a, a concept of this or a theory on this, okay? My lived experience, in terms of what I can teach others about living with ADHD and how it might affect anyone else, means very little because it's mine it's how it affected and continues to impact me that's what my lived experience can tell others my experience and what i've chosen to study what i've chosen to learn and the experience of working with thousands of other people with different neurodivergent conditions that's what gives me the ability to say, I have seen a lot of presentations. I have seen a lot of different displays and therefore I can make more, I suppose, informed statements as well as the fact that I'm constantly reading and networking with people who I admire greatly for their, their clinical work and their medical knowledge. So what parents, I suppose, and educators need to be aware of is if they choose to follow a particular source, for example, where's the information coming from? How much do they know? Just because someone's got a YouTube channel or an Instagram channel or a TikTok ch channel doesn't mean their information is credible. It doesn't mean they've done their research. It means they are trying to fly the flag for a condition that's affected them. Now, they might learn that. I'm, all, I'm aware of that. Over time, people learn. But at the early stages, right, you've got to be very mindful of it. And, and again, this is something I say all the time. My wife and I have been invested in this world for, well, where is he, 18? So just approaching 15 years this September, right? The things we would have said initially about autism, 
and then about ADHD before my diagnosis and my wife's understanding, the things we would have said back in 2004, 2006 would be completely different to the things I'm sat here in front of you saying now. In fact, there are some things that I, I'm horrified that I used to say that I thought were right. But at the time, I didn't know any different. I've now learned, experienced, studied and, and, and had the ability to sort of collate all of that information to no different. But I'm nearly 50. I lived with this all my life as well. Now I've got that little bit of knowledge to put onto it as well, but it is just that small part. So I don't think the issue is where people get their information from. I think it's dangerous when we hear sort of this sort of hyperbole about, oh, people are getting ADHD through watching TikTok videos. No, they're not, please. It's genetically inherited condition. That's that's nonsense. You know, when we see in the press when when another adult celebrity's been diagnosed with you know, forgive me, Kate yourself in point, we've got Johnny Vegas and uh, Sue Perkins in recent months as well. Yes, and various others. When we then get the news reports going, Oh, the mental health condition of choice this month is ADHD. Oh, why is everyone nonsense? You've been diagnosed because guess what? You've got ADHD. You can't make it up. You can't fake a diagnosis or an assessment. It doesn't work like that. That kind of rhetoric is dangerous because it can affect the way different generations then perceive the condition, right? But it's just about as much as people can looking at lots of different sources and, and, and go to some of the most credible charities, ADHD UK, the ADHD Foundation, for example, you know? One of the people I respect mm. probably most in this because of the work that they've done is, is Tony Lloyd, who heads up the ADHD Foundation. The, the man is a powerhouse when it comes to ADHD, right? Because of the work he's done. The, the, the same with people like um, Professor Nancy Doyle of Genius Within, Samantha Hughes set up ADHD Girls, right? These people have got the experience, the clinical knowledge, the the lived experience as well right so i choose to to network and to talk with all of them because you know i trust their information but i'm also i don't know should we call it cynical enough that i will look at people that have suddenly appeared out of nowhere and what they're saying and i'll be very much mm, okay i'll take that with a pinch of salt because in five years you wouldn't be saying that but I know that because I've been doing it for 15 years, nearly. So it's 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 difficult, it's, I suppose, what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, there's two points that I wanted to just come back to. Well, the main one really is, is I suppose, get your information from multiple sources, um, multiple credible sources, and try and find a consensus. I think the issue is, well, you, a lot of people fall for at the moment is the kind of, someone's famous so therefore they must know what they're talking about syndrome mm -hmm. you see it all the time um someone might have half a million mm -hmm. followers on tiktok or three hundred thousand yeah. followers on linkedin and they'll be positioning themselves yeah. as a expert on yeah. neurodiversity and my thought is okay maybe they know what they're talking about but my first thought is that doesn't necessarily mean that they're an expert in neurodiversity that means that they're really good at making social media content you know that's 
there's a big difference there. But a lot of people will see the vanity metrics yeah. and the large following and assume, oh, that because that's just human nature. You kind mm -hmm. of follow the herd and you think there's a reason they've got a big following. But if you actually break down and go into their accounts, they're very, very good at making content yeah. which is going to go viral, which is going to grow their content, which is going to grow their following. Um, and more often than not, the actual substance of the content isn't no. always that helpful or isn't always that informative. Mm -hmm. It's all very like generic algorithm yeah. friendly content. And they know that and they know that's what's going to get the reach and, and the following. So, yeah, absolutely. Basically, going back to your point is. Be careful where your information comes from. Try and get it from credible sources and um, don't try and don't fall into the trap, I suppose, of just following one ADHD, ADHD mm -hmm. or neurodiversity influencer or mm -hmm. even a handful like and going back to the second point about you said you said stuff in the past that you wouldn't mm -hmm. say now i've I, I said something on, on linkedin uh, a couple of months ago mm -hmm. shortly after my diagnosis um i jumped on a bit of a bandwagon and i called yeah. adhd a superpower because i don't know why i did um i was in a i was in a Yes. very energetic yes. phase after my diagnosis and I was yeah. making all sorts of content and, I, and I, I said my ADHD mm -hmm. is a superpower and that's why I've done a you know mm -hmm. lad and lad bible and trying to be over, yeah. overly positive and all of the comments were were basically saying mm -hmm. lovely post well done positivity mm -hmm. for the win but then it was you who commented saying that it was irresponsible to hide his face in a superpower and no, no, no. And at the time, I I saw it, and I because it was so it was so it was so in contrast to the other mm -hmm. the con the comments. And to be fair, most of the other comments were probably written by people who who were just trying to mm -hmm. be positive and not mm -hmm. be negative and just yeah you know, be friendly in the comment section. And I really that comment really made me research and yeah. think about the use of that word. And no. I would never use that word again because of the seed that you planted in that comment section that day. And the reason I would never use it again is because I think ADHD has given me huge strengths at various points in my life. Um, and yeah. it's also given me huge challenges. It's, it comes hand in hand with a lot of things that uh, I don't <laughs> want to wear a cape yeah. for. So, you know, so there'll there'll be people who, on any particular day, aren't experiencing yeah. those positives. They might just be experiencing the negatives, and I don't think it's helpful when you see someone saying ADHD is a superpower because then they'll read that and go, oh, I don't no. relate to that at all. I must have. Um, yeah, have and and listen, I, I I'm very grateful that that that's how you took that because I I, I have a habit, um, impulsive ADHD. And, and at the time it wasn't on my new meds but i i do have a habit of seeing those things and because of my own very personal experience that's a narrative that i am sort of on a mission to dispel and, and you've really you've explained it perfectly the issue with it is um nobody is a superhero all the time right nobody has the good bits all day every day and all I was trying to do at that point 
you know, and bless my wife, rolled her eyes and went, oh, not again. I mean, my kids, it's a running joke. Who are you arguing with on LinkedIn today, Dad? I'm not arguing. I'm just <laughs> making a point, no, you know, and, and then I kind of look back and I go, oh, well, I can see how it's a bit. But but they agree with me as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's a funny thing. It's a dinner table conversation. It's, oh, another superhero post and I show them and they kind of go, really? They tell their friends at college, look, please don't say this stuff, you know, stay away from it. But it comes from a place of wanting the information to be useful for everyone, right? Now, you're right. In, in You can look back on that, having seen that, and go, no, I get this. The bits of ADHD that enabled you to positively hyper-focus and to positively drive Lab Bible, drive Unilad and all the other brands, great. And, and ADHD certainly played its part in that. But as we said earlier on, it also played its part in the fact that you then drank too much. Well, if you take both sides of that equation, how's that a superpower? I don't think I had a superpower when I was in the hospital bed. Right. Tubes coming out of me when the doctor was saying if I had drunk a little bit more, I probably would have gone out. Exactly. And this is the point, there. isn't it? It's only when you look at the big picture, the rounded picture, that you think, oh, no, wait a minute. It wasn't all great. It hasn't all been easy. It hasn't all been positive. I have, in, in my own world, in my own sphere of what I've done, I have achieved things and done things I could never have imagined. Okay, I feel incredibly grateful for the, the opportunities and the successes that I have had in my life. And often I think, I've no idea how that happened. It's just, you know, it's fantastic for me. But on the other side, I've suffered with suicidal ideation on and off for the past, well, 40 something years, right? I just didn't know what it was called. I've been sacked from 25 of 35 jobs before I was self-employed. I've nearly brought my relationships to its knees. I've, I've put myself in debt more times than I care to imagine because I couldn't control my spending. That's not, like you say, sticking a cape on and being superpowered. That's not being able to understand what's going on in my brain and, uh, and understanding how I can control it. Now, interestingly, the way I finally learned to do that is to sort of hand over a lot of those things and admit them as my challenges and to ask for help in different areas, right? I need people to help me be more organized, to manage my finances, to do those things. I just am not wired for that. But like you, give me the idea, give me the passion, Give me the platform and I come alive. That that's what all I can do is talk. This is it. This is the job. This is the skill. This is the the talent I've been fortunate to be given. And I will use it as long and as often as I can if I think I help people. It doesn't mean I'm superpowered or better than anyone else at it. It means it's just something that I know I can do well. So when I posted that, it was, I suppose, a knee-jerk reaction. Right. You're right. Oh, OK. You know, there was a yes. Great. You've, you've founded these incredible businesses. But are you sure that's all that went on before we'd spoken? I didn't know anything else. Right. Are you sure about that? And to try and, like you say, give it the balance, because for years and it's exactly what you just said, I saw all those posts about, oh, ADHD superpowers, so dyslexic superpowers, dyslexic superthinking, autistic superpowers. And I just thought, Oh, wait a minute. So I'm not only ADHD, autistic and dyslexic. I'm the one that's got crap versions of them all. 
brilliant. Thanks for that. That's just tremendous. Because at that point, you can't see the successes. You can't see the positives. You can't see when it's enabled. All you can see is great, wonderful, because I've not achieved as much as that person or, you know, whatever it is. It's, and it, it almost robs people of their ability to see what they are capable of. Um, and I think that's important that we, we let people know we're all different. You, you know, I, I say this about anyone that's achieved things in business. You were probably in some way always going to be a success at something. You've, you had the ability to do. You just needed to unlock what that was. ADHD certainly has, has enabled you in certain ways, but you were probably always going to do well, right? The two just met, met and married at some point. But there are those people who will live perfectly mundane, average lives, and that's great. But what they don't need to see is people saying, oh, you've got ADHD, you've got a superpower, you should be a multimillionaire, or you should be, a, you know, have your own private island, Richard Branson's got this... No, no, it, you've got to look at it as a whole. You've got to look at it in in real terms. And I think what it also takes is people like you in the public eye, and again, notably recently, people who've said, whilst I can see how this has contributed to my success, I can also see where it's made me struggle. I can also see. It was one of the main reasons, it was one of the main reasons for starting this podcast, because I want to get the message out there. I get so many messages on LinkedIn and, and when I meet people and their opinion of me is that I've mm. cracked ADHD and I want to say, I want to put out a more balanced narrative and a more balanced message yeah. around my ADHD um, in a, on a public forum. Because again, exactly what you've just said, I don't think it's healthy for people to look at some people with ADHD who have done amazing things because like you said, that's just going to create this comparison void. And that's going to create misery because they'll, like you said, they'll think, well, I've got, I can't. Yeah, even do I completely right. agree. But I, I think for you to have the very quick recognition of that's the right thing to do and to also be able to recognize that you can use your platform to, to get that message out. Alex, that's incredible. That puts you in a different sort of arena for me than than a lot of other people in the public eye who've had a diagnosis because whilst they've been in news articles or various other things that's it it sort of stops there right there are a handful that then speak publicly about this or try and help educate people further about this so you now are in a in a really powerful i think position for me to help all those people in your LinkedIn private messages and Instagram or wherever to help them learn what it actually means. Because there's going to be a teenager somewhere on their phone, on their computer, in their bedroom, seeing lab Bible posts, seeing Unilab posts or from any of the other brands who probably has the potential to do something, but is struggling because of ADHD. And for them to see you publicly talk about it, be open about it, and talk to other people to gain experience from them, that could be game-changing for them. That could be absolutely game-changing. 
because then what they get is the the balance that might just help them succeed you know it, it, it is recognizing when it's hard no i'll rephrase that it's recognizing that it is hard right it is it's, it's not when it is hard daily i was explaining this to somebody this morning they were asking me so because they're, they're at a point where they're questioning, do they have ADHD, do, do they not? What does it feel like? And I said, the honest answer to that is it's exhausting. It's just exhausting to be that switched on 24 hours a day. To have your brain going that fast all day, every day is exhausting unless you learn to manage it. Mm. And that's the only way I can describe it. To go 30, no, where was I? 40... Uh, 45 years of my life, nearly 46 years of my life, being that perpetually knackered and not knowing why took a toll on me physically, mentally, emotionally. It did. To then realise there was a why behind it and that I had some chance of, of learning to control it was like, oh, so this isn't normal. Not everyone's this tired. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's figure that one out then, right? Let's, what do I do? And, and that's what's important. So this, you using this platform almost as a, as a way to answer those messages. It, yeah, it's incredible. It, it, it's just a voice that more people need. That was my intention um, in a way to sort of mass reply to all of the people over the last 10 years that have... Mm either message me on social media or come up to yeah. me after I do a talk and shake my hand. And uh, obviously ADHD wasn't in yeah. the conversation until recently, but it's, it's, the, it's the question that I get all the time is how can I do this? How can I do that? And I think with the ADHD context now, I think it's a really fascinating conversation to have. And the issue with a lot of the, social, the ADHD content on social media is the algorithm and this is another reason for the podcast, mm. because, again, to go back to creating a more balanced narrative of saying it's, it's you know, it can be really good, it can be really bad, um, but let's try and talk about it somewhere in the middle. The algorithms pr promote binary content. So they promote either overly positive messaging or they promote overly negative messaging. A lot of the actual accurate content right. is what I would call vanilla content. And if I put yeah. my social media marketing head on, that's content that you, you don't want to put out because the algorithm isn't going to reward that content. It's mm -hmm. not going to arouse emotion in people, which is your number one goal as a social media mm -hmm. marketer is to get people fired up in some way. I yeah. get them really angry or really happy or really sad or really laughing a lot. So vanilla content that sits on the fence generally doesn't do that. So you try to avoid it. So you either have to, mm -hmm. you have to be very binary. You have to go ADHD is either really, really good, it's a superpower, or it's, it's really, really bad. And that's the content which I've noticed gets a lot of reach and a lot of, um, a lot of newsfeed space. So that's the content that, that young people, teachers, general, the general population yeah. is being exposed to on TikTok and LinkedIn to a certain extent as well. Um, and I don't know how many people realize that like, algorithms reward binary content and that the social media generally... I mean, we're going off topic a little bit into more like social media chat, but it's, it, it rewards binary content. It's unhealthy um, to the point. The actual, the truth is somewhere in the middle, but the algorithms don't. No, but actually it's wildly on topic. If you think about it, right, that binary state that social media exists in 
right? With vanilla somewhere in the middle. It's almost like the kind of thing, it's like the, the, the ADHD brain searching for the dopamine, whether it's good or bad, happy or sad. That's what we do because it fires us, it gives us our stimulus. Social media is essentially operating in exactly the same way. Doesn't want you to see the boring bit, doesn't want you to see what's in the middle. That's not going to get numbers, that's not going to get reach, that's not going to sell paid content or paid adverts, etc., etc. Right. You know, it's it's the um, the YouTube video thumbnail sort of thing, isn't it? Where the thumbnail has absolutely no relation to the video that you suddenly watch and you think, I don't understand until you realize that it's the thumbnail that does the attention grabbing and then they've got you. Right. Fine. But you know that. And if you can be however you manage to do it and you know more than most about how to do it, if you can be the person that somehow can can work that system so that more of this content gets heard, gets seen, gets viewed, gets digested, then other content creators might just start making more balanced content. You're always going to get the extremes. You're always going to get the imbalance. I think that's just part of the social media animal, if I'm honest, and always will be. But if there's more of the balance, it sort of eventually starts seeping through. It becomes a bit more sort of, of a constant undercurrent of noise, right? And and that's what we need. Mm. You know, I, I, I firmly believe that's what we need because it's that ADHD as a condition, regardless of when you were diagnosed, regardless of age, sex, gender, race, religion, ADHD is going to impact the people that live with it and their families and their friends and their colleagues and everyone else they ever have a social interaction with it's going to have an impact on them it is not a destructive thing it is not there to ruin lives and it nor does it have to but what we need is the balance and the 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 voice that gives people with ADHD an opportunity to say, look, this is what it is. This is how it feels. Let me show you this video where someone explains this because I've never been able to put it like that, that they can share with whoever that helps them then understand it, right? If that starts mm. to exist more, what you're doing is really valuable and means you're winning and you're, 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 you know, you're fighting the good fight as the, the phrase often goes, right? If we just, panda to binary content nothing changes nothing changes because all that you get is the the good yeah. information is oh well that's just medical that's boring that's just clinical it's not it doesn't have to be that way but you've got to present it in a way that people want to watch it i suppose well part of the marketing strategy for this podcast is to take mm -hmm. sound, make sound bites from this conversation which almost contradict yeah. the binary content so prime example is saying ADHD, not yeah. quote unquote, but ADHD isn't a superpower. Yeah, you know, that's quite a, a statement that goes against a, a, a big narrative on social media. So that soundbite should yeah. feed people into the full conversation. That's that's so chop this up into yeah. algorithm friendly smaller bits, and then hopefully feed people. Into yeah, and then funny enough, that's exactly why when I was um, I was recently sort of taken on by several speaker bureaus to just you know to deliver keynotes about it and you know you have to what are you going to talk about and one of my topics i think the headline is still um 
talk of masks and superheroes belong in comic books and movies, not in discussions about neurodivergent conditions. And it was deliberate. That's a deliberate, like you say, it was a deliberate, because I know someone's going to see that and go, sorry, what? Run that by me again. But it's because I want them to be questioning, why is he saying that when everyone else says? So I think I know what might be coming next. Braces himself for a social media onslaught. This is where I get yeah. DMs. <laughs> For months. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it, it yeah. is the, the topic of masking. Um, again, because I'm so new to it, I've, I've, I've almost like a parrot just repeating what I've heard. And and I say, oh, I've been masking yeah. my ADHD occasionally in public. And, and then I saw you were the first person, I think, that I've seen go yeah. opposite to that narrative and say, essentially... In fact, so much it's, yeah. it's even in your... No, they may be taken it off, funnily enough, because it's not a real name. Oh, right, okay. Right, okay. <laughs> um, and... Okay. It's a difficult one. I don't know. Um, I, I think there's many... There are. So let me ask you a question. Ahead. Let me start by ahead, asking you, you a question and feel free to reflect on this. For, let's say from the point you gain success, right? Let's Let's start with that time frame so from 2010 2012 when lab bible uni lab became things okay and you started to do those talks and you started to get more uh, requests for your your time would you say that when you went out to do those things you were deliberately putting on a mask you were you were presenting a deliberately different version of yourself to either make it easier for yourself because it reduced anxiety or because you felt that's what you needed to do? Or did you go out and just be Alex? Yeah, I was the last one. I've never, ever had to force a version of right. me. But there are many versions of me. And I saw your thing on LinkedIn yesterday about the masking isn't, I'm not going to quote you, but you, you said basically you, you're, you don't... Mm -hmm. We don't wear masks, essentially. It's correct mm -hmm. if I'm wrong on, on, on the context of, of your, what you're saying. Um, and that made me think, do I, have I ever masked? And what does masking mean? And I thought masking yeah. implies that there's like a conscious effort to alter your character in order to fit in. And I've never consciously altered my character. I've never forced uh, a, 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 to speak a certain way. I've never forced myself to be less rigid. Or I've never forced myself to be less loud yeah. to, to fit into that situation but there are many versions of me if i meet someone for the first time it's very very different to uh if you've known me for yeah years, absolutely right and i and and yeah. that makes a lot of sense so th this is where i come from I, what i'm going to actually use because it's probably more effective for people that maybe understand it i'm, I'm going to try and use this using autism as an example if i can but it, it does come into adhd as well because we all are impacted different so if you take two people with autism, and if anyone who's listening or watching this saw the recent Chris Packham documentary, okay, there were some brilliant examples of this in that. So if you take two people with autism, one of whom is, let's say, nonverbal, non-speaking, severely impacted, um, doesn't communicate in the same way as that other people can, maybe has the type to communicate, and then another person who has a job, has gone through education, has a relationship, has a home, 
okay? And who, on first sight, just looks like every other person, okay? I guarantee you, if you take both of those people separately and ask them, do you feel you have to mask in public? It's only the person that doesn't look like they're very autistic or that, that looks like they've got autism that will say yes. Because the person that is nonverbal feels no need to mask. They're just who they are. This is me. This is my autism. This is my struggles. This is my challenges. But I am me. I can only be me. And I want you to accept me for me. Okay. The other person learns this word masking when they learn about their condition, whenever that is. They hear it used and overused. And I think we, we skew the context of it. So the context becomes, it's like the superhero thing, right? It's, it's taken to be, I'm putting this mask on to hide my true identity from people, to hide my, my difficulties from people. I'm, I'm not letting you in, right? Well, you're not really. Okay, no, that's not quite what happens. What actually happens is learnt behaviours kick in. So you might find social situations very difficult. You might find social interactions just utterly confusing and baffling, and you don't know how to respond in certain situations. So what we do from a young age is copy. It's how we learn to speak. It's how we learn to communicate. We copy other adults and other children. Well, in that situation, they do that. So that's what I'll do. Does that make sense? So rather than masking, we are copying and we copy the behaviors and the social constructs that we think are expected norms okay and then we replicate those when that situation arises again so next time we're in the same situation internal rolodex goes ah i know that other people do this at that point and that's what you do and then it becomes rote and it becomes normal what happens is when those people go home if it's caused them anxiety, if it's been difficult, they may need to decompress, right? Be quiet for a few hours, sit and not say anything, okay? But nobody looking at them during their day is going to say that they are, they feel they're being presented a false version of that person. They're just being that way. Now, I never never wore masks. I wore costumes, by the way, as an entertainer. I changed my name as an entertainer. That's persona, right? That's a, that's a, you know, a stage name. It wasn't a mask. I was just the version of me that, that my clients and people expected of me, right? As I am here. It doesn't mean I don't struggle. It doesn't mean I don't get exhausted from all the social interaction. And it doesn't mean that, you know, after this, I'll take half an hour to decompress. I'll just sit quietly, scroll some YouTube videos, whatever it may be, because I need to process everything I've said. But I'm not wearing a mask. And the reason I think the masking thing is unhelpful, therefore, is because it tends to be those people who are perceived to be more capable that say they're masking. They are then the ones that go to work and say, oh, I'm struggling. I'm finding this difficult. I find work difficult. This is difficult for me. And you're not helping me, Mr. or Mrs. Employer. And when they say, well, OK, but we didn't know you needed help. That's because I've had to mask all the time. That's an answer that makes absolutely no sense. If you want people to know that you're struggling, don't tell them you're masking every day. 
talk to them honestly and say, look, this is who I am. This is what I live with. This is what I find difficult. Can we come up with any solutions or work around? OK, that takes some confidence, right? If you don't want people to know you've got a diagnosis or a label, that takes some confidence. But that's why I do what I do. And everyone else in this sort of sphere does what they do, because we're trying to make more people feel empowered. So bring it back to ADHD. Right. You go into a meeting, say a board meeting or a, or a client meeting. Are you bouncing on the chairs? Are you constantly fidgeting? Are you interrupting everyone? Are you looking like the the person that's really struggling with ADHD or are you internalizing things that you're challenged with and have you come up with coping strategies to help you feel better and to get through those situations? My guess is it will be the latter. Right. Now, it, um, yeah, no, well, I, maybe I you, saw, you put a post that about that. Yeah. And going into a, and going into meetings, but depending on the meeting, depending on the outcome of that social interaction, it could last <laughs> for 10 minutes or it could last for three hours. And but I'm never faking how I'm presenting myself. If I've got the energy then I am presenting myself in a very energetic, confident way. If I'm not getting anything from that meeting anymore, then I could be a very different person in the second half of that meeting. But both of those exactly. Alexes are genuine and authentic. None of them are me intentionally trying to act differently than how I'm feeling inside. Um, I, I, I take it back to an example. This was years ago. I don't know if my brother remembers. I was in a bar in the town I live in, and I, I my brother went to the toilet, and um, some people walked into the bar, and I said what they came over and they sat next to me and i said hello um really i love meeting new people uh, james my brother um came out of the loo i didn't realize he had come out and, and later on he said i heard you speaking to those people who who the who who was that talking that didn't sound like you um and th th that's kind of wrong true like how i act around my family and how I act when I meet new people is very different. And whilst that's true, I don't think that's the thing. I don't Almost think that's masking. Polar. I think that's just presenting. That's the word I use. None, none of them are. None, none of them are, are fake. I love meeting new people, um, but after <laughs> and again, depending on how that meeting goes, and if I'm getting stuff from them, then my energy and confidence is maintained for slightly longer. Oh, Generally, yes. Yeah, I'm that's important. Cliff. <laughs> and, 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 and I, you know, if, if, if my long-term friends, which are there, which are probably mm -hmm. a handful of people, I imagine like most people, three or five people I consider to be my best friends, my close circle. Um, I'm very, very, very different to them around if I meet someone. Yeah. In fact, drastically different. Um, the Alex I'm with when I'm playing Xbox with my friend yeah. is a different person to when I meet someone and shake their hand after I do a talk. Yeah. But I love both of those. Yeah. I love being in both of those situations and it's not hard for me to be in both of those situations. Like I think I bet I'll just repeat what I said earlier. Like my, I present how I feel. I'm never, mm -hmm. I'm never faking a presentation. And I guess if, if you define masking as having on a, mm -hmm. like a fake, persona that you're having to keep in place and make sure it doesn't slip otherwise then i i think i probably agree with you in terms of that masking is 
Yeah. Not as now, I, I, simple. That's a great way of phrasing it, Alex. I'm probably going to steal that. It's not as simple. It's not. Let, let's go back to what you said about social media. It's not linear. It's not either you are or you're not. I understand where it came from. I understand the theory behind the term. As I do with superheroes, right? I understand where all these things came from. And they're great if we're talking to the little children to explain how these things work for them. We need to behave a certain way in a classroom because it's expected because our education system isn't set up to let you at the moment. So that's a bit like putting on a mask. So, you know, the definition you could use for a little one is, well, you know how, I don't know, Superman looks like Superman when he's doing all his amazing stuff, but when he's not, he looks like Clark Kent. In the classroom, you need to be Clark Kent. But then you can be Superman when you're really good at the things you're really good at. Right. For a little one, that's a oh, makes perfect sense. Get that. Great. Understand that. Thanks. That helps me. For an adult, we we just need the confidence to be honest. OK, I see. And I'll go back to what you were asking about social media now. I have seen so many examples recently where, you know, young adults, adults, um, have, have got a recent diagnosis of something. They're at the very early stages of coming to terms with that. They're doing the whole, oh, my lived experience thing. But then what they're doing is presenting very learnt behaviours that don't actually match what appears to be their real presentation of things. Okay. So um, both ADHDs and autistic people stim. I don't know if you're aware of this one yet. So stimming is the tapping your fingers, twirling your hair, right? Now, go to a classroom and you'll see classrooms full of like fidget toys like this or rocking cushions or whatever it may be. Fiddle toys. I've seen recently as well, in a, you know, I've seen lots of people who have got these new diagnoses. They're trying to get this out there and they're sat or they're stood in interactions where they're trying to explain it and they're playing or they're they're stimming in a way that just is not natural they're stimming in a way that they've seen probably content from other people who are far far more severely impacted than they are and they are copying that learned behavior because what they are telling themselves at that point is that's what difficult looks like with my autism right but that's not actually 100% true. That's more masking than anything else because that's going to confuse the issue, right? I stim constantly, constantly. I tap my feet, I move in my chair, I squirm. Right? That's all stimming. Now, people might notice it, they might not, but I'm not doing it for effect. I'm not doing it for sympathy or to show how autistic I am or how ADHD I am, I do it because it's a subconscious, unconscious thing that helps me manage my anxiety. That's why I have this on the desk. I'm a rock climber. I have a finger trainer on my desk. And when I get a bit antsy, I just, you know, I can sit off camera and do that, right? I'm not doing it because I want you to know that it's a struggle for me. What I, you know, I'm doing it for me. The narrative of masking is I'm masking for me but you should be able to understand it, Mr. or Mrs. Person without a neurodivergent condition. You should be able to read through my mask and say, oh, are you struggling? That's illogical. 
It's just illogical and it makes the whole process of trying to increase advocacy and trying to increase awareness that much harder. If more people can say, okay, look, this is how I'm going to present when I'm good. This is how I'm going to present when I'm not so good. And if you know that, you know, if you notice these things, it would be great if, you know, if you're aware of it, fantastic. Then far fewer conversations about how difficult masking is. But again, right, 15 years ago, when I learned about all of this, yep, absolutely, oh, my children mask and people mask and masking, masking, masking. It's only as I've watched my kids grow up and I've seen what's happened with me and my wife and all the people I've supported that I've now got this understanding of actually it isn't quite like that. It doesn't work like that. But the narrative that gets pushed so go back to that social media thing. The stuff that social media picks up is masking so difficult. I'm masking, I'm masking, I'm masking. So then it becomes truth. Now, I, I'm not being deliberately contentious and I know people will disagree with me and people do. So I will always caveat it with this opinion is mine based on my experience of other people, not me. Right. This is based on other people that I've witnessed work with, that I'm friends with, that are my kids' friends. That's where I've come to this conclusion, because I'm fortunate enough to know people who are both severely impacted as well as less, you know, less severely impacted. So I've seen everything across the, you know, the scatter diagram of, of presentation. And I don't say it to rattle people's cages. I say it to try and get them to think, is there a different way we could approach this? I can only talk about, on the subject of masking, I can mm -hmm. only talk about my own experience with myself. And I kind of, I, I don't relate to a lot of the content I see on social media mm -hmm. around masking. Uh, similar to what I said earlier, there's, there's extremities of my, how I present based on what's going on, who I'm with, no. how I'm feeling, but none of them are ever fake. No. Um, it's never an effort to, to or uncomfortable to act a, no. a unauthentic, forced no. way. That's the word. Like I'm not, I'm never forcing who I am, but there yeah. are drastic versions, yeah. different versions of, of Alex. Um, but they're never ever, they're never fake. So yeah, I, I think, I mean, we'll, we'll see. Um, I don't relate to the the a lot of the content I see around masking on social mm. media, um, I can only talk about how I I act in different situations. And but the two are lumped together. Very often, you see masking things. superheroes. <laughs> there's the image, right? Mask cape. Da -da. But they're lumped together, which makes it even more confused. It makes it even more confused, mm. right? It's it's that thing of it. It just doesn't make sense if we're trying to help people understand us. It, 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 I, that's the bit that I can't, I can't compute. Saying that and expecting to be understood, you know, it, it makes no sense. So when I train people, when I deliver training and people say, well, how can we help people? They've spoken about masking. Just be open. Let them know open conversations are fine and try and recognize what anxiety looks like. Because a lot of the things, a lot of the times we struggle when anxiety is kicking in, Right. So try and recognize the anxious behaviors because that's actually probably where you're going to see a more honest version of that person when they are struggling, right? Let's use the phrase when the mask slips. Try and spot that and have a very kind conversation to say, 
do you need anything right if we do that maybe they'll open up and if you do that once they then come back to work the next day and think oh wow they want to help they actually want to understand not mm punish me or I'm not in fear of losing my job because sometimes I need to wear, I don't know, noise cancelling earbuds or to work in a quiet environment. But that's that's where it all gets muddied by these kind of things. But again, that's just my opinion on it. It would be amazing if employers were familiar with their employees' different moods and versions of themselves mm -hmm. in the same way that my family and my partner is familiar with mine. Um, if I'm, you know, they can pick up very quickly. If I'm anxious, they can pick up very quickly. If I'm really happy, they can pick up everything in between. And they know based on experience with living with me and, and that all my moods and how I act when I'm in my various uh, spectrum of moods, you know, um, I, how do we so this employers, uh, I suppose? Yeah, it comes back to communication. Build that relationship. Right? So my 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 own take on this is whenever an organization approaches me and says we'd like to deliver some neurodiversity training for our workforce i say great but the people that need it first are your senior leadership team you've got to start with your hr directors and managers and your senior leaders and your execs and your management team because they need a different level of neurodiversity awareness training than your workforce do and the reason i'll say that is twofold one They've got the challenge of managing neurodivergent people, which can be a challenge. There's no two ways about it. If we don't know what's going on, why someone's presenting the way they are. So they need a different knowledge about that. And then you need your workforce to have more general knowledge that actually is really saying to them, the company you work for genuinely want to help make this a better experience in the workplace for you. They want you to bring your whole self to work, whoever you are, however you are, and they want you to feel comfortable in having conversations about it. And that's what the big takeaway should always be is once everyone's got the knowledge that they need, it's about maintaining and having fantastic conversations. However you choose to do that, whether that's through effective employee resource groups, whether that's face-to-face -face meetings, using Slack channels, WhatsApp groups, it doesn't matter what platform people choose to do it through. It's about keeping the conversation going, listening to those people. So have your ADHD group, have your autism group, or have a neurodivergent group, it doesn't matter. Right. In the same way that you might have them for race and gender and ethnicity and religion, etc. Have the groups. Let people feel they can talk freely about it. Let people feel they can raise questions or concerns or even suggestions. Hey, I think the office would be better if. And then you create a more. Holistic environment, a a calmer environment, a more open environment. And one that has got nothing to do with deficit. It's got to do with people. Because fundamentally, neurological wiring aside and everything else aside, a workplace only functions if its people are happy and feel able to do their job to the best of their ability. And the only way I think employers can do that is to make that environment feel genuinely 
that that's at the core of all their values. People first. I agree 100%. I think it's a real, well, we know that a lot of neurodivergent employees don't speak up. Uh, They don't disclose their condition for fear of uh, their boss thinking or their stigma. Uh, They worry about maybe they won't progress in their career. They'll be held back because an unspoken uh, stereotype will negatively affect them. So, yeah, you're 100% right. It's the company that should be putting the foot forward and opening their arms and making it clear that they see the value in a a neurodivergent workforce and come, you know, put accommodations in place, reasonable accommodations in place, and also allow a communication where you're you're letting your workforce suggest other ones or allow them in a safe way to open up about their their needs and and their conditions so you can get the the best out of your workforce semi lamenting the fact that there's a you know there is a day to celebrate everything and sometimes it's multiple things on one day and she was saying you know they were planning their edi calendar and oh, there's just so much stuff and i genuinely kind of said to her look I understand why you feel you've got to do these things on these days. And sure, okay, an email or a post, but what your employees really want is to know that those things are valued every day. Not not that it's one day a week, one day a year, or one week a year, or one month a year. Every day, those things that are part of them are important to you because they make part of those people. And people are your business. Now, that might sound like a really simple thing to say, but it does take a commitment. And yes, it's got to start with awareness and then it's got to start with investing in training. And yes, it's got to then continue with, you know, retraining and refresher and recruitment processes and so on and so forth. But ultimately, It's about saying people are people. They're made up of lots of different components and aspects and we value everything. And we understand that these will bring with them challenges and positives. And we want to help you succeed in and including all of them. That's it. All right. Well, I mean, on the face of it, yeah. It's simple as well. But a lot of a lot of business. Yeah. Well, that that it's got to come from the top. Simple. It can't just be words. It can't be the really passionate EDI person trying to change everything. It's got to come from the very top of the very, very tallest branch in that tree. And they have to be as committed to that process as every other person that's involved in it. Because if they're not, the people on the ground floor know. And they feel it and then they're still hesitant and they're still Mm. nervous and they still don't believe that if they speak up, it will be okay. So the people that need to introduce these things, head up these things, are the people that run, own, you know, and and exec those businesses. Otherwise, it's there's always going to be a degree of, well, do we actually believe that our business is is 100 percent bought into this or are we just flag waving? If there's a company owner listening who is aware of the value that uh, a neurodivergent employee could bring, but doesn't know how to make that first step by fear of maybe they don't want to say the wrong thing or they don't want to patronize or they don't want to go about it the wrong way. How can a a medium-sized business 
make that first step into making it clear to their workforce that they are open ears and yeah. they are they have their arms open to the conversation apart from like bring obviously well bring yeah their, basically that's what i would say is dependent on their ability and dependent on their budget right either bring in an external speaker trainer person or maybe look internally you know just send that the if the, if that's on that person's mind right if that if they're aware that they would like to do that there is no harm in them sending out an internal communication that says for whatever reason hey look we are we're at a point of learning in our business and we want to do our best to support all our colleagues with neurodivergent conditions if there's anyone amongst you that we'd be willing to share your experiences we would love to give you time because we think it could help everyone else and see what comes back if nothing comes back what it tells them is maybe the culture's not quite there yet so they do need to get someone external in to help people feel like they're really committed to it if someone does step up and say okay maybe then perhaps their culture's doing a bit better than they thought already right but that's what i would suggest you know it, it's you you've got to make your employees not make us wrong you've got to help your employees believe that there is a genuine commitment to this not that the company's just ticking boxes because it's xyz day right they've got to believe it's mm. a commitment mm. and i um i i believe i i i talk with a startup business who have shown me a lot of really interesting data in terms of recruitment, you know, uh, uh, on things. The change recently, in recent years, in what people looking for jobs value most has been really significant. It's now true to say most people place as much importance on the salary as they do the well-being package that's in place. So they are going to want to know at recruitment, does this really have anything in place by way of EDI? What do they do? What happens if I'm unwell? What mental health have they got? You know, whether it's mental health first aiders, have they had any neurodiversity training, etc. That's as important now. So it starts from the website, for example. You know, one of the most common things I still see businesses of all sizes that aren't doing is using something like there's a, a function called use away other ones are available a plugin for most sort of uh, web platforms that makes your website accessible click of a button people can change size font colors they can stop videos right why is that a good starting point because as soon as somebody looks at your website they see that you've already made a commitment You've made a commitment to understanding that different people have different requirements and without any fanfare and without any brouhaha, there you are. If you know what that button does, feel free to click it if it helps you have a better experience. How long does it take to put on a website? Minutes. Minutes. And yet it's met with, oh, well, do it. Well, is he going to... Um, change the look and feel oh but does it fit the you know does it fit the branding yes pay the money get it designed properly and it does but what it does is gives people 
either new to your business, customers, or your existing employees. It gives them a really fast and clear signal. Oh, that's interesting. That's nice. Our company's done that. That makes me feel happy. I'm a small business. I'm me, right? Consultants is a grand word for one bloke working out his own home, but I've got it on my website. It's the first thing I did when I created it. Because it would be very hypocritical of me to work in this space and not have it. Does that make sense? But it should be standard on every platform. He says, <laughs> I was at the, yeah. we spoke earlier about that. I was at the Neurodiversity and Business Conference yeah. in London yesterday. It's a huge conference. Uh, it's like their first conference, actually. Big, big success, laser speakers. And I think you mentioned one of the speakers earlier. And I'm my short-term memory with him yeah yeah awful, I think yeah professor nancy, nancy Doyle, dr nancy Doyle, Doyle, yeah genius with him or Na you I think you mentioned her earlier professor nancy Doyle, yeah and i think she was presenting data because her, her she was saying very articulately that it is amazing that business leaders are compassionate and they're putting accommodations yeah. in to try and reap the rewards of having a neurodivergent workplace but realistically yes. a lot of them are going to respond to facts and figures and data that, sh that, that show the uh, show the benefits of a neurodivergent workforce and, and she, she was i'll try and link her yeah. presentation in, in, the, in the show notes of this show but it, i guess it's, it's the other mm -hmm. side of it it's relying on like the compassion yeah. and the empathy of the, the people at the top um, but if that's not there then those types they of do. people have to be persuaded in a more data-driven way. And I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of, from what I heard yesterday, and I'm not going to quote it, but it sounded really encouraging. It sounds like there's a lot of data-backed studies going on now which are showing and proving oh, the yeah. advantages of a neurodivergent workforce and actually showing the retention of when yes. you put yeah. accommodations in place skyrockets. And of course, if your workforce are quitting and leaving because they're not having a nice time and they're not psychologically mm -hmm. content, then the cost of retraining, the cost of going through the admin of hiring someone. So there's a cost, without there's a cost to a high turnover. Yeah, without that. And, and that data is really important as well because it is a really good sort of starting point for businesses to understand what they're doing well, what they could do better, and how important it is to their their employees and to their workforce. It's a really good starting point. But yeah, um, the report that they've created with Burbeck University is, I think, you know, first of its kind in terms of a, a nationwide survey of business owners and, and employees and how do they think you know the, the current lie of the land is but it really is very timely and very important that that i suppose there's different ways for businesses to to see the value of it you know like you say if somebody doesn't know a lot but they can see the data that proves it that might be what what makes them encouraged to then dig a bit deeper you know so yeah it's um mm. yeah it's fascinating stuff it's fascinating stuff. <laughs> I could talk to you for I, hours. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, it's the wonders <laughs> of ADHD. There's no off switch. <laughs> well, it's been fascinating because we've, I've sort of got some notes on my bit of pad here. I'm very impressed. Like, yes. You sort of, sort of probably saw my eyes darting down there from time to time. And, and uh, <laughs> because I was keen to keep the conversation yeah. ADHD related. And I think we've actually done that 
without me having to sort of steer it back because like you said it is easy to sometimes talk about something and then suddenly you're talking yeah. about disneyland and something you're talking about something completely unrelated. oh well thank you i've really enjoyed it and and you know it's it's interesting though you you can dart off topic but adhds and everything you've spoken about right yeah it's it's it's, it's t- you can tie it into so many things i mean there was one thing which we didn't cover just relationships now i mean i'm happy to end the call well i think that's probably an episode in its own right is what i would say in my experience certainly however it is if i could summarize adhd and relationships challenging for both the person with adhd and the partner without um wildly interesting again for both but takes an awful lot of extra work extra compassion extra time um and probably almost extra leeway to to communicate a bit more effectively in a relationship something that i'm aware i probably didn't do very well until i got a lot older um but yeah it, it you know you you can throw things like emotional dysregulation in there and rejected reject rejection sensitive dysphoria that lots of people struggle with and all these sort of very clinical things essentially what it comes down to is my wife describes it beautifully adhd feel everything a lot more typically than others whether it's happiness sadness anger boredom frustration we feel everything and if we haven't been able to learn the tools to regulate those emotions once we get into relationships our capacity to take it out on our partners or to flash or to drive them mad you know can can be really challenging for them um so there's an awful lot that we can do to to live and to learn there's an awful lot of accepting how our adhd can be frustrating for people that live with us but also it can make for fantastically fun relationships it can make for you know great relationships as well um but it's the communication for me is key comes back to the same word all the time communication is vital whatever you're talking about but definitely in relationships 100 percent. and funnily enough the relationship i'm in now is 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 the one that's the most successful and it's the one that i have yeah the context of adhd and the extra processes i have to put in place to ensure that what's happened yeah. in previous relationships can be avoided like mm. uh, the the keeping stuff yeah. bottled in and then potentially just exploding in in an argument you know it just yeah. comes out and it's, it's it can be really upsetting um going into hyper focus or yeah. you get a new yeah. project and you just completely blank your partner um loads of things which can cause friction and yeah. conflict and essentially ultimately a breakup or a divorce yeah. um really aware of it now um now that i have my diagnosis oh yeah and, and that's the key to it is just keep talking keep sharing admit when you're not great you know let people know when you partly know when you're struggling give them solutions give them space as well realize that your brain probably is going much quicker than them particularly in arguments that's an interesting one um uh and just you know just work together on it but if i if i could sum up i will leave you with this my theory on adhd 
is it is entirely about impact. And all I mean is if we can understand what the impact of living with ADHD is for ourselves, for the people we work with, live with, socialize with, we have the best chance of living our best life with ADHD. If we don't understand the impact and how to manage it, it will and has the potential to make everything that much harder than it needs to be. So learn about yourself, learn from others, be critical of the resources you learn from, look at lots of resources, and then be very honest with yourself. How am I impacted? Could I do anything differently? Would it make a significant difference? From there, life can be immeasurably easier. I think that's an amazing summary. Amazing summary. I can I can relate and agree with all of that. And I think that's a really nice way to end the, the podcast. Um, thank you for... That's actually, thank you for making it so enjoyable for me. I, I was having... I sort of go in peaks and troughs of my motivation and my uh, excitement for a project and yeah. I can feel this one has got the the the, the legs and the um, to, 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 to maintain it but when I have these conversations and it it, it reminds me of, of it fills me oh, with I'm really pleased and do please whatever you do um, keep keep going make as many of them as you can talk to as many people as you can because like i say you're in this wonderful position where you can you can make so much difference for so many people um and that's just so mm. so powerful so uh, yeah i i applaud you for doing it keep doing it um and uh, yeah I, I just think you're doing a, a fantastic thing so soon into your own sort of awareness of adhd as well it's brilliant Thanks so much. And yeah, I think the audience is going to get a huge amount from, from these two hours. I'll put some show notes in the in case. I think we have really. Because we've really covered quite a broad range of topics. I think that's fantastic. And it's amazing. I think um, as, the, as the show, it's interesting because I often just think out loud and I'll say it now. Like I, I was toing and throwing whether to, to stick to one topic per episode and just yeah. go on about uh, relationships or stigma or masking or whatever for an hour. Um, and maybe it will turn into that maybe it won't i don't know um i don't personally think i've probably got the i think i'm going to find so much more enjoyment from the show if if like this conversation where there's a there's yeah a, but i'll listen to the audience feedback um i don't think there's a right or wrong answer i know there are so many people you could talk to who could specifically focus on certain things and they'd be incredibly engaging and fascinating and, and insightful and then there are others like me, you know, I do consider myself a generalist. I always have. Um, but there's there's usefulness in generalist information with, it sounds very egotistical, but with some understanding and knowledge behind it. But there's also great value in, you know, if you want to focus in on the science or, or the clinical stuff, there are people out there that I'm sure have already connected with you who will be able to tell your audience things that will, you know, literally transform life so yeah i think you've got a great opportunity to take it whichever way you want depending on who's sat in front of you really yeah no i agree it's exciting and i think as a first you. episode i think this has been amazing i can't wait to put it out there um yeah and i think people are going to find it really really valuable thanks so much matt for coming on if people want to find so you, website um, is thinkneurodiversity.com 
um, and then uh, same name on Instagram and then LinkedIn uh, is uh, my name. So LinkedIn uh, is Matt Gopwell. It's just the, the last part of my, my profile. So um, yeah, M-A-T-T, uh, Golf Uniform Police, Whiskey Echo Lima Lima, just to show off because nobody can ever spell it. Um, so yeah, uh, you can find me on there or Think Neurodiversity as well. Um, but yeah, I do love hearing from people and, and I will say this, if anyone's got any comments and they want to tell me what they are, I, I believe that I learn from other people's comments about what I say. I don't claim to be right. I will never call myself an expert. I'm just a bloke who's lived with ADHD and spent a lot of time thinking about it. But um, yeah, I do really enjoy hearing from other people as well. Amazing. I'll put all that information and, and a, a quote of what you just said. Yeah, fantastic. To yeah. contact you in the show notes because a lot of people won't make it three to two hours but um my, uh, a lot of people will absolute pleasure thank you so much it's been honestly amazing it's good yeah it's been yeah you will thank you very fun. much thank you matt and uh, yeah speak to you soon hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.